This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. one 888 I'm not sure how many calls I can squeeze in this hour. It's going to be a big hour. We have a lot to discuss. The great Susan Lee is going to be here. I, I had to do a deal with Stuart Varney to, and uh, Neil Cavuto to get her off the business channel for a short period of time to share her expertise on what's going on. You know, we have Janet Yellen writing a book and using all her charisma to do the late-night shows. I don't know why she makes – I guess she's really bright, but I have yet to see her say anything insightful that provides any insight for me. Anyway, uh, number two, uh, we had Jamie Dimon sit down for what I thought was a very interesting interview on Face the Nation about where he sees the economy. His knowledge of the overall political situation that I don't think has anything to do with the economy was pretty astounding to me and made me think that this guy should be president, although I don't think he should run. Tom Kirsting's going to be joining me, too. You know Dr. Tom, and he is somebody that has a book coming out called – he had a book out called Disconnected. You can still get it. A new book coming out called Racy, Raising Healthy Teenagers, and he just talks about social, uh, social media and how it's made parenting so much more challenging. Uh, and I just think that he's a perfect person. If you had a chance to see 60 Minutes on Sunday, a lot of parents are getting in the offensive – and they're going after the social media companies. And I think it's, it's about time. They just want to say you're a bad parent if your kid uh, uh, gets depressed because they use their phone too much. And the bottom line is the older kids get, the more free time they have, the more simple decisions that they make. And they're much more tech savvy than you. And any controls that you put on there, they're going to find a way around them. So here's my big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Behind bars, FTK founder and apparent fraudster, I have to say apparent, Sam Bankman-Fried arrested in the Bahamas. All he did is lose about a billion dollars to a mil- for, uh, from a million people. But the timing worth examining and his negligence astounding. Number two. Musk first Fauci. Yes, the, uh, the, the bad should begin to understand, uh, the left should begin to understand how bad things are for Anthony Fauci and how bad they will be in challenging the man who was once untouchable. The left can't protect him anymore. His decisions were terrible. His arrogance is evident. And Elon Musk is calling him out. We'll discuss. Number one. Tweet drop number five, focusing on the banning of Donald Trump. It turns out a lot of things behind the scenes. There was a lot of disagreement of banning uh, 45 for life. And the pushback, because his tweets, if you look at him, and I wasn't really looking at his tweets on January 6th, were not that insightful. And what I find unbelievable is that, you know, Donald Trump did so much for Twitter. Uh, and I think if you look at how many people he, uh, you look at how many people that he brought to Twitter, because, well, uh, love him or hate him, they wanted to find out what he was going to tweet next. It made so much news. But they despised the fact that he used Twitter. They despised the fact that he would thrived on Facebook to win in 2016 and continue to bypass many in the media by using social media platforms and a lot of times paying for the access. 
So I think it's pretty telling. The latest tranche from Barry Weiss, and she focused on what was happening January 6th and what went into the evaluation that he had to go. And here's what Barry Weiss pulled up. She said, the Twitter staff assigned to evaluate tweets quickly concluded that Trump had not violated Twitter policies. Quote, I think we have a hard time saying this is incitement. Another staff agreed, don't see the incitement angle here. I see he has pinged us to ask about incitement for the for DJT tweet and want to see if we can align. This That is from a member of the legal policy committee. They want to find out if they could get rid of him and finally kick him off. The bottom line is what he came out and said that day is hard to really get your head around. He basically said, for your 75 million patriots, uh, your your voices will not be silenced. That doesn't mean go uh, raid the Capitol. That doesn't mean go take over the White House. That doesn't mean I'm not leaving. That doesn't mean pick up arms. Bottom line is you have a lack of consistency there because you leave the Grand Ayatollah on. All he wants to do is wipe a country off the face of the earth and kill all Jews. Uh, you have other people on there that is going to come up. For example, the president of Nigeria incited violence against a pro-militant uh, uh, group, said those, are the field, uh, those of us in the fields for 30 months who went through the war, we will treat them in language they understand. Twitter deleted the tweet but did not ban the leader of this Nigerian tribal group. So that's what's going on. There's a lack of consistency. And I was surprised many people going to bat to keep Donald Trump on the platform. But he's gone. He's got truth social. But now they want him back. I'm Brian Kilmeade. I'm just scratching the surface. Can we come back? Susan Lee joins me uh, in studio to talk about the big arrest of that fraud uh, from that uh, Bitcoin company. That really just screwed people in a way I didn't think was possible. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. His mouth to your ears. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Uh, when I heard about this arrest last night, I thought, this is going to make my big three. And I got to call Susan Lee. And I had no idea that would rhyme until I started speaking. Uh, I'm talking about the collapse of FTX. This has been a story for the last five, six weeks. But for the first time, we could say that the man behind it, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, is arrested in the Bahamas, expected to request extradition, uh, the authorities say, and bring him to America one day before today, he was supposed to testify before the House uh, committee on, um, well, I'll tell you, it was uh, Lee Zeldin is beside himself. A lot of Republicans think the timing is very, uh, very intriguing. Let's bring in Susan Lee from FBN. Uh, hey, Susan. Hey there, Kilmeade. So the congressional hearings are still happening. We won't be hearing from Sam Bankman-Fried, but we've kind of heard him, I guess, uh, give his side over the last 20 interviews that he's given to different outlets. <laughs> and we've asked, I've asked several times, I think he's concerned about coming on Fox and just a tough questioning he might face with us. Right. Uh, especially, uh, I don't even know why he would, because if he wants to win people over, if he's going to go in front of Congress, he's going to get all sides asking appropriate questions. Right. And we do know that he did give money to both sides, he said. And we do know a couple of people on the right, but he said we was he, on the right. They said they're going to keep the keep it quiet, I guess, because he want to take off people on the left. Go figure. So here we are. He's they say roughly 
He owes a million people over a billion dollars. He says yep. he wanted to stay out so he could help earn and pay back all those people. What do you mm -hmm. think about the timing and who is going to be at this congressional hearing now? Well, the timing, I think, is probably with the U.S., the Southern District of New York, because they're the ones that filed the charges. And the SEC actually printed and just made public their charges against Sam Bankman-Fried this morning. So they're alleging that SBF, FTX, concealed, again, illegal diversion of FTX customer funds, which is a crypto exchange where people go to buy their Bitcoin and Ethereum. And he secretly funneled that to his own personal hedge fund trading account, Alameda. They said that that resulted in $1.8 billion of defrauding from investors. And it was also used to buy Bahamian real estate and $40 million penthouses. That was also part of this uh, SEC filing and allegations as well. But I would say, look, he has some bigger problems ahead. Obviously, people are thinking that he deserves a lot of jail time. And so congressional hearings, they can have their own side. So I feel like we've already heard what Sam Bankman Fried has had to say over the last 20 interviews or so, which isn't that much, to be honest, at the end of the day. This is what you point out, though. Commingling of funds, he admitted it. He admitted yep. that he gave his girlfriend a billion dollars and didn't know she couldn't, couldn't back it up, I guess, Caroline Ellison. And the right. New York Post has today that Caroline Ellison from Alameda, when she heard that he was brought her up in a negative way, that he's based, she might have flipped and she is going to tell all to investigators. Could that have happened already? And is she well, in trouble? Yeah, well, obviously she is absolutely in trouble on the table, as we call it. She's hired her own legal team. It was actually, uh, I think that actually made headlines yesterday in terms of the uh, people that she's hired. So she's definitely lawyering up, knowing that she's part of these allegations, part of this investigation and this SEC uh, case. But, you know, in terms of actually what she did, I mean, she was his girlfriend. She was the CEO of his hedge fund trading arm. So there's definitely some commingling of affairs and definitely commingling of customer accounts and funds. This will go down as one of the greatest bankruptcies, I think, in U.S. history. It's already one of the largest at $39 billion, But uh, it's not good for the crypto industry. And the other large crypto exchange called Binance, which, again, was probably the instigator in the downfall of FTS because they own about $500 million dollars half a billion dollars in FTX's own token. And when they said something smells fishy here and we're selling, that's when the bank run started and FTX was exposed. Right now, there's a concern about contagion and whether or not Binance, which is the world's largest crypto exchange, might also have DOJ, money laundering, some sort of illegal activities associated with it. So, so you still, and I'm just, I just have never got my head around crypto, so I'm going to ask the most basic <laughs> questions. But you still, and people that are involved in it, have not given up hope in it. Uh, there's other traditionalists who never believed in it. So right. where do you stand, Susan, after all these revelations <laughs> well, have come forward? Like from what, what should we conclude from what you know? Are these just bad well, people making bad uh -huh. decisions, or is crypto fundamentally flawed? Well, J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon, you heard what he said last yeah. week again calling crypto tokens like pet rocks. But he does believe in the underlying technology, blockchain, which means kill need and give money directly to Susan without having to clear the banks for two days and for us to wait for those funds to actually uh, make their way across different banks and systems. I believe that there is an obvious future for blockchain. I agree with Jamie Dimon. I mean, how can you argue against one of the smartest bankers on the planet in America? But it's going through its rough patches. The Wild West, you know, early stages of a, a young industry. And I don't think Bitcoin 
and cryptocurrency is going away. Sure, it's it's come down a lot from three trillion. Now it's worth less than a trillion dollars. But that you have sixty million people that mm-hmm. actually hold some form of cryptocurrency in the world. I just don't think those type of numbers means it's going away anytime soon. So Susan, you heard that a lot of these celebrities being sued uh, yeah. uh, in a class action suit. Uh, this may be a more of a legal question, but I'll just throw it at you: Are they in trouble? <laughs> uh, I mean, the yeah. Tom Brady's of the world that out there and told everyone to buy it. Well, I thought the most astonishing admission last week was the fact – did you ever watch uh, Shark Tank? One sure. of the sharks on Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, was paid $15 million, whether it was an FTX tokens or outright cash to be an endorser for the crypto exchange. $15 million for a shark on Shark Tank is just unbelievable money. So you wonder what if he's if Kevin O'Leary, who not many people know, is being given fifteen million dollars. How much is Tom Brady's deal worth, or Steph Curry, or Naomi Osaka? And when the, the fact that people have lost about eight billion dollars—that's the amount that's still missing from FTX customer wow. accounts. Eight billion like, is missing. Yeah, because average people that were looking to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum on the exchange gone, still missing. And the SEC alleges that part of this fraud is only $1.8 billion. So I don't know if the FC, FEC uh, – well, it's too early for me – if the SEC is undercounting. But uh, I would imagine that if you're a client and you funneled money there and there's still $8 billion missing, right. you're wondering what the celebrities got in this deal. So Jamie Dimon sat down on Face the Nation, and he just talked about the state of the economy, where our country's heading. And then some of these cuts I just wanted to share with you. And number one, I could not believe – his, compre- his comprehension on politics as well as policy and economy. I mean, it just makes me think this guy is perfectly suited Smart. to run for president. I don't think yeah. he wants to. But here's what he said about energy. And one thing he said early on, he says, my, my heart is Democrat, but my head is Republican. Listen to what he said about energy right now. Cut 12. Okay. Carbon emissions are going up because nations rich and poor around the world are turning on back on their coal plants. Mm-hmm. They cannot afford expensive energy, and they can't afford no energy. So, you know, to me, to solve climate, we kind of need all the above, permitting, plants. Gas is the best and cleanest way to reduce coal, which is mm-hmm. the best way to reduce CO2. So, you know, really thoughtful policy, comprehensive policy will get us there. But it also is military policy, economic policy, including trade. So when I say economic, I'm talking about, you know, trade is one thing, but economic is investment rights. Uh, so, so anything that relates to national security will have to be re-changed. So he's just saying, hey, guys, wake up. And he goes on to say that natural gas is green. The more natural gas, the less coal you need. Why don't we producing this at a greater level? And this war has a lot, could be an opportunity for us to get off Russian oil and gas forever. Agreed. But it takes time. However, the energy majors last week, Chevron, just said that they are increasing their capital expenditures by 25 percent. They're going to spend about $17 billion around the world, most of that in the U.S. So I think the oil majors, oil companies like the Exxons and the Chevrons, they know they need to reinvest and invest more heavily in the U.S. after this energy crisis. But I would agree that we haven't necessarily gotten past the inflation uh, the inflation shock, because this, uh, this winter, I think Jamie Diamond is absolutely correct. There's concern about how much heating your home is going to cost and what that means for the rest of the energy markets. Will there be a shortage? You know, in Switzerland, they're thinking of not allowing people to recharge their electric cars this winter so people <laughs> can have enough electricity to heat their homes. I'm going to Switzerland next month. I'm concerned, although I, I won't be driving an electric car. Right. But you I have, you have su- you, you're so uh, well-traveled. I am so jealous. <laughs> you don't go to, you know, you don't go to uh, make short trips to Montauk. 
It's all, you're always going to the Far East. I mean, do you go to places with, to really Europe. expand your mind? Europe. Yeah. Hey, speaking well, of I Europe. I was invited to the uh, Kilmead Estate. That's why. Where are right. the Kilmead barbecues on the weekend? Yeah, I mean, you don't even know the combination to my gated community, correct? <laughs> exactly. Here's more. That? Right. That, I blame myself. Uh, here's yes. Jamie Dimon on Energy Cut 11. On the energy front, we need secure, reliable, cheap oil and gas. The problem, you know, a lot of people think that oil and gas price being high is good for CO2. It's not. So cheap, reliable, you see, you're looking at Germany. I mean, the Europeans are terrified. Their, their energy prices are two, three, four, five times ours, mm-hmm. which is hurting consumers, which the governments have to do something about, and it's hurting businesses. And if you talk to the average person in America, their oil and gas utility bills are up high. So when you, he also said it's a problem because there's such a discourage. There are a lot of people that are discouraged from investing in oil and gas and fossil fuel companies. And he said people are beginning to feel the effects of that. We all will. Yeah, well, I think you see it in your electricity bills. I don't know if you pay your household bills. I know I see it on each and every month. Um, but I was looking actually the actual energy outputs in America, and still more than 50% comes from what we call CO2 emissions. So think of the uh, the coal fire plants, natural gas, I think, is up there. And wind solar is barely maybe 20%. I see nuclear is all the way down to less than 10% of electricity generation in this country. So I think there's been obviously a, a rethink in terms of the allocation and, you know, we should get more energy from cleaner fuels. Nuclear is actually cleaner than CO2 emissions, but that's going to take time. Mm. So in the meantime, how do you heat homes and how do you make sure that everybody, you know, is warm over the winter, especially with storms that we're seeing this week? And lastly, I, I know Europe has been very resourceful and they talked about the natural gas and what they're doing with uh, building terminals at record speed. I've been reading some of that. But I do know this. A lot of people say gas is going down. That shows what we're doing is working. But there's a lot to have to do that China is down and their production is off and therefore gas is down. Meaning that oil prices, you're talking about WTI yeah. at its lowest in a year, at $71 a barrel. Yes. I think there are price spikes. So, you know, we know that OPEC is keeping their output level. So that's not coming from the cartel. It, it is about use. That's right. So it's a slowing growth environment for everybody. That means we're going to use less oil. And China has been closed. Uh, so And China has been locked down for a long time. So that's the reason why oil prices have been coming lower as well. But, you know, the $70 a barrel, how long is that going to last for, do you think, especially as we head into the winter months? Not, not think, long. That's why well, I always the reason would... I ask is Goldman just to raise their forecast for oil prices. I think they're calling 80 next year. So, you know, this it's probably a temporary decline for now, but we're not going to get much higher, according to Goldman. All right. The music means that we're about to end our segment, and uh, you are the MVP of the show so far, Susan Lee. <laughs> I, I can't Only guarantee you. all three hours, but right now you're in the number one slot. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> thank you. Have a great right. day. And remember, you're going to be invited to our Christmas party as soon as we have one. We're picking it up. Right. We're picking a day today. Okay. Bye, Kilmeade. All right. Brian Kilmeade, Joe. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade on the road. 
uh, in beautiful Miami, Florida, doing a big interview with uh, former Governor Jeb Bush. We'll be, you'll see it on One Nation. Here's some of it on our show a little bit later in the week, back in New York City a little bit later. But one thing is pretty true. No matter what state I go to, to what town I, I enter, whatever city I'm in, one thing is pretty clear. Social media is an issue, especially when it comes to kids. One of the few experts in this area who really drills down on it, does it for a living, as a family ther- a therapist and author of Disconnected, Tom Kirsting. He's been on the show before, always great. You've seen him on TV, too. He's got a new book coming out causing, causing, um, called Raising Healthy Teenagers. It comes out in February, so right after the new year. Man, what an apt topic, especially coming off the 60 Minutes feature this week, as parents are getting on the offensive and saying, stop telling us we're bad parents. These kids with these devices are not on our supervision 24 hours a day. We need some responsibility from the social media apparatus. Tom Kirsting, welcome back. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Tom, this was a five-alarm fire when you were talking about this years ago. Do you think it's getting worse? Do you think we created more of a problem through the pandemic because kids were alone more than they normally would be? Yeah, you, so you're right. I mean, I started, I'm like one of the first people to start, one of the first experts. You know, the yeah. first time I lectured on this topic was in 2009, believe it or not. So I've been you know, traveling throughout the country for years, and it just continues to escalate. And to answer your question, you know, so the mental health epidemic among, you know, among our kids, it, 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 didn't, it, it didn't start with COVID, COVID accelerated it. So for example, if you look at some stats in between February and March of 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic, yep. suicide attempts among uh, teenage girls 12 to 17 rose 51% compared to 2019 numbers. But, you know, this epidemic, started, the mental health stuff started, believe it or not, in 2012. And that's, that's when we really started to see an, uh, a rise among young people. And that's when smartphones became mainstream. Keep that in mind. Absolutely. So I'm sure you saw it in 60 Minutes. This is right up your alley. The Spence family has come forward and saying, I've had it with social media companies blaming parents. Here's a little of the story that they told on Sunday. Cut one. They're holding our children hostage and they're seeking and preying on them. Preying on them? Yes. The Spence family is suing social media giant Meta. Kathleen and Jeff Spence say Instagram led their daughter Alexis into depression and to an eating disorder at the age of 12. We realized that we were slowly losing her. We really had no comprehension to how severe social media had affected our daughter. She was being drawn into this hidden space and this dark world. So so with the Spence family speaking, does this sound like a session that you've been in? It's every single day, Brian, at my private practice, every single day. I have the, the same exact situation with a kid, uh, whether it's oppositional defiant behavior, kid flunking out of school, hostility in a household. And you have to remember, so when we, we talk about mental health and this epidemic among kids, what, what is mental health? All right, let me explain it real quick. So it's basically what is circulating in our mind and what, whatever is circulating in our mind, where does that come from? Well, it comes from what we're exposed to comes from living as human beings. And we know that the average kid is spending somewhere between eight and nine hours a day on some other planet where their malleable brains are just absorbing, you know, crazy stuff all day long. So they're not really here on planet Earth. So naturally, it's going to affect their mental well-being. It's going to cause loneliness. Um, and it's going to change, you know, just the way they think and, 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 and lead to, you know, eating disorders and other things. So, you know, for example, in other eras, we'd grow up and you'd be in a rough neighborhoods, a lot of gangs, 
uh, maybe a lot of hostility. Maybe you have uh, parents in the household, uh, a divorce is uh, an affray that's abusive in an addiction situation. But the social media things, okay, those things might still exist. And let's add this into the mix. And people want to quickly say, you know, the environment or the parents. This is what the parents said, uh, the Spence family said, you know, when people say, okay, drill down, put some controls on there, cut to. Middle school teachers from Long Island, New York, gave 11-year-old Alexis a cell phone to keep in touch with them after school. We had very strict rules from the moment she had the phone. The phone was never allowed in the room at night. We would keep the phone in the hall. We checked the phone. We put restrictions on the phone. I would wait for my parents to fall asleep, and then I would sit in the hallway, or I would sneak my phone in my room. I wasn't allowed to use a lot of apps, and they had a lot of the parental controls on. And so how quickly did you figure out a way around the restrictions? <laughs> Pretty quickly. So the kids are much more than the parents. <laughs> no doubt about it. And, and that's the thing, like, you know, when, when uh, parents... If you ask me when I'm out lecturing and so forth, you know, how do I teach my kid how to be responsible with this? The answer is you can't. The kids cannot. Their, their prefrontal cortex of their brain isn't developed yet. That's the part of the brain that's responsible for risk, risk-taking behavior, impulsivity, and so forth. So we have to be the ones to do, to do that for them. Now, the best thing to do is not get your kid a smartphone until late adolescence. And right now, the average age that parents are getting their kids' phones, smartphones, is 10 and a half years old. And we all know that that's just stupid, <laughs> but we do it anyway. It's called social conformity. And, you know, I'm out there trying to change that, trying to create a new, new conformity. Uh, and and when, when do you know something's unhealthy? Well, when, and anything that you're obsessed over, right? So I tell people, I'll say, all right, listen, you know, it's not that, that technology and social media in and of itself is really bad, right? It's not, that just, it's not just by nature a bad thing. It's kind of like this. If somebody has a glass of wine with dinner at night, right? And in Italy, that's what you do every night pretty much, right? It's not a bad thing. If you have eight or nine glasses of wine every night with dinner, then we have a problem. And that's the space we're in right now because that's the, literally the amount of time that kids are spending more than any other life activity. And it's sure it's going to suck their brains into this vortex and affect their mental health. And we have a whole litany of, you know, of tertiary problems now, an obesity epidemic, you know, a social skills epidemic, you name it. And it's because they're not, we're not as, as social, emotional beings anymore. We're hypnotized inside this deep, dark place. Especially if you're a non-athlete, you, you don't feel comfortable in sports. If you're in sports, well, maybe you're over-committed. Uh, that might be an issue, but you're out there, you're running around, you're interacting with other kids, dealing with coaches, teams, refs. So that, to me, is a more normal upbringing that, that seems to foster development. I just want you to hear what they're saying, too, about what how, what's, that the kids are saying about how sometimes seeing these other kids on Instagram or TikTok or anything, having a better time than them, um, that makes them feel. This is Alexis Spence on 60 Minutes Cup 4. I was struggling with my mental health. I was struggling with my depression and my body image. And social media did not help with my confidence. And if anything, it, it made me, like, hate myself. It all came to a head her sophomore year when Alexis posted on Instagram that she didn't deserve to exist. A friend alerted a school counselor. That was the scariest day of our lives. I got a call to come to the school, and I went there, and they were just showing me all of these Instagram posts of how Alexis wanted to kill herself and hurt herself. And if Instagram is really has all the software to protect them, why was that not flagged? Why was that not identified? Well, those are good questions. And number two is, uh, thank goodness somebody took action, right? 
Yeah, hundred percent. Now here's here's the issue here too, Brian. I you know, um, you know, at pre-adolescence and adolescence, just that in and of itself is a very I call it the purgat- purgatory moment, where you're kind of transitioning between childhood into adulthood, and you're in this middle area where you're changing hormonally and so forth. So it's a very challenging developmental stage for kids. And now you throw into the mix this social media stuff, and what gradually what happens from just constantly viewing everybody else's highlight reel. The mindset in that vulnerable mind that sets in is along the lines of everybody else's life is so wonderful, my life really stinks. So it's another layer on this already difficult stage called adolescence, and it's a big layer. Yeah. Uh, so when you when you start realizing that, hey, listen, people have drama. There's 12-year-olds who didn't get invited to Halloween parties, right? There's yeah. – uh, you know, and Christmas is not going to be – you know, you're not going to have your friends over. Uh, you don't get many calls, not many text messages. You feel like everybody else is more popular than you, taller than you, uh, better looking, more athletic. That's normal that you go through it, but you're saying this puts it to the 10th power. And the biggest question is, does Instagram, Facebook, and all these other uh, social media uh, devices and programs, do they know what they're doing? And, and that's where they might be legally viable because they're looking to hook people in to get more views, uh, to get more advertising dollars, perhaps. That's what they're assuming. I want you to hear this last one, cut five. This previously unpublished internal document reveals Facebook knew Instagram was pushing girls to dangerous content. It says that in 2021, an Instagram employee ran an internal investigation on eating disorders by opening up a false account as a 13-year-old girl looking for diet tips. She was led to this content and recommendations to follow Skinny Binge and Apple Core Anorexic. Other memos show Facebook employees raising concerns about company research that revealed Instagram made one in three teen girls feel worse about their bodies. And the teens who used the app felt higher rates of anxiety and depression. So, I mean, that's pretty evil, isn't it? It is. And I can't I remember that, you know, about a year ago when it came out, when they, I think it was uh, Instagram had done their own internal study on yeah. this stuff. And then it revealed that, you know, it was making girls more depressed and anxious and so forth. But, and they tried to conceal it. And then, you know, then it got leaked out to society. And, and one last thing, right? Like we talk about, you know, what I try to tell kids all the time when I'm talking to parents is that when you hear the word self-esteem, okay, what's the important word there? Self. So that's how I feel about me. It's how anybody feels about themselves. And that's never going to be attained by likes or streaks or anything that's external. Self-esteem is internal. And that's what we need to teach our kids. It's, we have to teach them how to go within and get out of this world without what I call it. And how do you do that? Uh, can you do that in a session from you, uh, Tom Kirsting, being a professional? Or can you? how do you put that into a kid? Yeah, what I, what I implore these parents to teach their kids or kids is I implore them to sit in silence every day for 15 minutes. And it sounds crazy. You know, I'm going to sit in silence for 15 minutes, but it it is by far the most important 15 minutes per day that that kid will spend because they'll actually get to know themselves. They'll actually get to feel themselves breathing. They'll get, I call it the rest of the iceberg, you know, within ourselves. And the tip of the iceberg is, you know, everything that these kids believe is reality. You know, the amount of likes they have, streaks, followers, and all that stuff. So self, you want to get to know self, it requires repose. It requires sitting in silence. So interesting. And uh, do you get pushback on that? All the time. <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> and it goes to show you. you know, it goes to show you, like, is that that hard to do? Well, if somebody's never done it, it is because it's terrifying when you're just sitting there, you alone with your thoughts, and you've never done that. But with practice, uh, you can master that, and you master self, and you unveil the 
mm. for the deeper person that exists within. Tom Kirsting with us. He's got a book coming out called Raising Healthy Teenagers. I can't imagine people uh, driving to work right now, driving to school, dropping things off, and not benefiting from this conversation, whether you're a grandparent, parent, or you're actually a kid uh, listening around the country. And lastly, we thought we'd bring this in. Uh, Johan Hari wrote a book called Stolen Focus, um, and just about how kids just don't play anymore. You know, and, the, and there's, there's such a fear out there about kidnappings and what if my kid goes to the playground and doesn't come back or walks to the store and somebody does something. So they don't do it. So listen to what he, what he was saying our situation is now. The idea that kids can't play outside without this being dangerous, this has never been the case in human history. Kids have always played together, much of the time without direct adult supervision. That's been the way for all of humanity. To suddenly say, no, it's too dangerous. It's like saying kids should sleep upside down. It's an inversion of what every previous human society has thought. So why do we do this, Johan? Because well, if, you're, if you're that parent and that kid goes to the playground at, at eight uh, years old and doesn't come back, you're the worst parent in the world. Yeah, well, in recent years, Brian, I'm glad you brought this up. In recent years, outdoor play is down 71%. So kids are spending seven to eight hours indoors playing and only about seven minutes per day outdoors. And this idea, and I talk about this. It's funny. I'm so glad you brought this up. You know, this kidnapping, where people don't realize that kidnapping is at an historic all-time low. The problem is, you know, there's a camera on every street corner. There's a camera in everybody's pocket. So every bad thing that is happening in society is picked up and is funneled immediately to the armpit with what I call social media. And if we're seeing these things over and over again in our mind, they're leaving an imprint, and it's causing an erroneous fear, something that's not real, because we see it all the time. Like, for example, a kidnapping. Somebody gets kidnapped in the middle of rural Mississippi. You now know about it five minutes later, whereas 20 years ago you would have never heard about it. And I have a, a ch- actually in a new book, I have a chapter explaining this. Uh, the chapter is called Fear, Fear-Filled Nation and how we're all live all kids and everybody we're living in fear because that's what is being driven to our malleable brains through our phones all day long. Right. Uh, and you know, I talked to the Robertsons, uh, duck dynasty, and they were out six, eight years old with guns that they've been trained yeah. with. So they'd be out there duck hunting with their older brothers, you know, not by themselves. They go through the training and are driving tractors at 11. And that's just a totally different rural upbringing. So there are people listening to us right now, especially in New Jersey, yeah. rural New Jersey. And, uh, you know, we're in Iowa and we're in upstate New York. They might be they might be kids that are outdoors. But for the city kids, uh, yeah. that's where the seven minutes comes in. And, and for a lot of suburban yeah. kids. Yeah, my parents grew up in the Bronx. Right. Uh, <laughs> and they said my dad was telling me he was, he was taking a subway. All over, all over New York City when he was like eight years old by himself. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> and he's okay. Yeah. Tom yeah, Kirsty. Right. Yeah. I mean, Vietnam too. I, I, uh, I can't imagine a book more appropriate. I look forward to talking about that and, uh, of course, your expertise along the way, Raising Healthy Teens, and your other book is called Disconnected. Tom, thank you. Hey, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Hey, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, on the road, back uh, with your calls, one 408 and more incredible insight. Don't move. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Just to finish up this hour, I just thought that uh, Tom is a perfect guy to talk about maybe one of the hottest issues in the country that people can't get their head around and they don't want to talk about. 
well, do you want to sit there at a, at a cocktail party or at a card game or at, at a baseball game? He goes, yeah, I got a problem with my kid. We'll now put down the phone. Very depressed, very insular. Uh, you know, it's kind of good, too. Sometimes parents are saying to themselves, the kid's on the phone. It's kind of good. I get a moment of peace to myself. I'm going to let uh, him or her stay on the iPad for a while. You have no idea what's happening and how psychological, uh, psych, uh, psycho, uh, psychologically they could be affected. Uh, meanwhile, I also think we're going to continue to bring it up. The f- we now have the fifth tranche of Twitter files there out there. Uh, this is heavily focused on Donald Trump, and I did not expect this. You know, some people are saying, oh, you know, Trump was going to be banned. You know what he did on January 6th. But if you look at his tweets and what they did – to get Donald Trump off Twitter and how there was such pushback inside Twitter saying he really did nothing wrong. And we, from these tweets, we can't really stop him from being on our platform. I was a little shocked. Ultimately, uh, the higher ups decided we're banning him. And he ends up banned from Twitter forever. But it is brought up that there are so many other people not banned from Twitter forever because uh, it happened to be the Grand Ayatollah for saying, let's uh, make sure that Israel is uh, banned off, uh, blown off the face of the earth, and we're going to make sure that's going to happen. We have other brutal dictators making uh, abhorrent statements. And when he, uh, when Donald Trump on January 6th, you probably don't remember or probably aren't looking, uh, you have Donald Trump basically saying, announcing uh, right before his permanent ban, he wants all, all good patriots, 75 million people will not be silenced. Okay. That is 75 million people did vote for Donald Trump. That is the most in the history of any Republican running for office. There was a huge turnout, prospectively, uh, that day because it was so much easier. It was so much easier to vote. Uh, and there was a big turnout and there was a big ride in the January 6th. That's what MSNBC and CNN is fueled by. Uh, but to get to all these explanations about what was happening behind the scenes and how they were just winging it, there's no algorithm telling them what to do, is unbelievable. I'm not sure what it does for Donald Trump, but it's a, it's a learned moment for all of us. But I'm staying on Twitter, and I'm going to pay for my blue check. It's going to cost me 11 bucks a month. I'll find it. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't look for me at 48th and 6th. That's where the entire crew is. We have a staff of like 61, 62. Uh, some, one person works from home. Uh, and then, of course, we have taken the rest of the crew on the road. We're in Miami. Big interview with Governor Jeb Bush. You'll hear some of it on this show, and you'll also hear see some of it on One Nation on Saturday night uh, as the governor weighs in on Ron DeSantis. He actually wrote, did Governor Jeb Bush, the bio, the biopic or the description of Ron DeSantis as Time Magazine's one of their, um, I guess, their power players or uh, Time Magazine's people of the year. So Jeb Bush wrote it, and I, we thought that would be great for our Ron DeSantis piece, Who is Ron DeSantis, which is a series on Fox Nation, which you all watch. In a matter of moments, we're going to be uh, speaking with uh, Mayor Suarez of Miami, and then bottom of the arrow, Will Hurd, former CIA guy and former Texas congressman. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Well, it's amazing what $40 million to Democrats by Sam Bankman-Fried can buy. Why is the Biden Justice Department, why are they filing charges and seeking this extradition before he had the opportunity to testify tomorrow? Why wouldn't they want him to testify 
Yeah, and he had a chance to go in front of uh, the House committee today, and they'll still have a committee about FTX and its collapse. But the founders behind Barr, Sam Bankman-Fried, arrested in the Bahamas. All he did was lose about a billion-plus dollars to a mil- of a million people, uh, cost a million people, uh, lots of money. But the timing worth examining because he would have a chance to testify. Is there something that he would say that would embarrass some politicians? Number two. You know, I'm getting asked by all of these people right today, come on the show and how do you respond to Elon Musk? I don't respond to him. I don't pay any attention to him because that's merely a distraction. From what? You're retired. Musk versus Fauci. The bad should begin to under the bad news should begin to Oh, it turns out that Musk is exposing a lot about the CDC. And a lot more is going to be coming out about Anthony Fauci and possibly what his division was doing with social media to make sure other people's opinions about the pandemic were squelched. Uh, Elon Musk not backing down. We'll talk about it. Number one. This is a group of people at Twitter who may not have any concept of the idea of free speech and what it's about. This Twitter apparatchiks don't seem to trust anybody uh, outside their own hallways. There you go. Uh, Britt Hume. Tweet drop number five, focusing on banning of Donald Trump. It turns out a lot of people behind the scenes saw his last few tweets and said, there's really nothing illegal there. It doesn't violate our terms, but they still suspended him anyway. Next up, as I mentioned, is the latest on the pandemic and what went on behind the scenes to stop great doctors like the ones in Stanford and otherwise not political players, but people that disagreed with with what the Biden administration was doing. Let's bring in one of the most successful mayors in the country, Mayor Francis Suarez, the 43rd mayor of Miami and president of the United States Conference of Mayors. Mr. Mayor, we're in your neck of the woods. I know you're busy. We didn't give you any notice, uh, but uh, good job with Miami. I like the weather and I like the scenery. Well, Brian, first of all, I'm never too busy for you guys. Um, And you can always call me on short notice uh, because it's important for us to continue to tell the story of, of, of a successful city in America that leans into the American dream and understands that uh, this country uh, has been founded on the principle of hard work, education, uh, caring for each other, and leaning into uh, capitalism uh, and, and, and understanding that, you know, if you, if you do the right things, uh, you're going to be prosperous in this country. And uh, that's not something that we should be ashamed of. We shouldn't be ashamed of prosperity. And we see, unfortunately, what's happening across a lot of American cities is, number one, uh, crime is going up. Number two, homelessness is out of control. And number three, there's this there's a shaming of people who, are, who do well, who are successful, and they're pushing them out of, of, of cities. And it's unfortunately uh, reminiscent of what we saw in Cuba uh, uh, and we've seen in Venezuela and Nicaragua where the leaders there said, just give us all your property, give us all of your businesses, and don't worry, we'll make sure everybody's equal. And, and they did. Uh, they, they created equal misery and equal poverty for everybody um, and, and, and equal destruction. And the first thing that happens uh, when the government starts taking control of everything and growing beyond its competency is that people who are productive leave. That's, that's, that's the first thing that happens. That's the first uh, implosion, uh, step one of, of, of the implosion of, of a country, and we're seeing it in American cities, and, and Miami is traumatized by that. So because of that trauma, uh, we're not falling susceptible to a lot of the same arguments, which are, frankly, very easy arguments. Listen, if you're not doing well, if something's going wrong in, in your life, or, or you're not as successful as you think you can be or want to be, um, and someone tells you, hey, look, we're just going to take from these wealthy people and give it to you, that's a very attractive uh, argument. You know, it's, it, 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 it's something that is, is, is seductive and easy which is why socialism has 
has uh, unfortunately prevailed in so many different parts of the world because it's an easy political argument. Unfortunately, it's the short-term uh, satisfaction over the long-term you know, gratification because it creates long-term destruction and people have to have discipline to avoid it. Yeah, Mr. Mayor, I think the best uh, advocates for America are Cubans and Venezuelans these days. Well, and because they know where they're coming from and they know how much better it is. And they also see the signs of things that are overpromising. If you dive into what's going on in China, what happened? They promise we'll give you a good life. Uh, we'll build up the middle class. We'll give you plenty of manufacturing. We'll give you a job. And instead, they got a pandemic. They poisoned the world. The, the, the unemployment is through the roof between 18-year-olds to 30-year-olds. And then they have the zero COVID policy. And the people are beginning to erupt knowing it could mean jail or death. They don't care. So instead, people should take a sober look at socialism and communism in China, too, correct? Absolutely. I mean, in China, they had the one-child policy. Now they have a declining birth rate, so their population is dwindling. You know, as you said, they've, they've cracked down on capitalism when uh, for a period of time it looked like they were embracing capitalism and growing. Uh, now they've cracked down on capitalism, which is pushing out some of the major companies uh, that have created wealth in that country. Uh, and like you said, the COVID policy um, has essentially sheltered everyone in place for an indefinite period of time uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, brought the economy down to, to basically nothing. So, you know, what happens in America is everybody wants to come here. What happens in China is no one wants to go there. And so, you know, I often say that, uh, you know, no one's getting in a boat and going back to Cuba. And, you know, I'll tell you, in this, in this moment that Miami has had, which we call a movement, um, you've seen people from across the country come to Miami from places like Newark, uh, Chicago, uh, you know, San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley, et cetera. And the fear was initially, hey, w- w- you know, is this going to hurt our politics? And, and, and what we saw was the exact opposite. And I kept telling people they didn't really believe me. But I said, look, no one's going to flee a place of bad policies and yeah. bad, bad politics to try to reproduce them. And what we saw in Miami was Miami went from plus 30 for Hillary in 2016 to plus 10 and plus 12 for Marco and, and Governor DeSantis in 2022. So that is a 40-point swing. And actually, I think it hurt people like Lee Zeldin in New York um, because I think he probably would have had a better chance of winning the governor's mansion in New York. But a lot of the Republicans <laughs> got out of there and came to Miami. Very interesting. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I, no one has to tell you about, um, about, high, uh, about big tech, uh, social media as well as Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And you, last night we found out about the arrest of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. They've, well, he's lost over a billion dollars. No one can find it. Over a million people have been affected. Uh, Lydia Moynihan was on primetime last night from the New York Post, has been covering this and trying to figure out. This guy's in a lot of trouble, but they arrested him the day before he was about to testify. Cut 28. Regulators felt like they were being taunted because he was going on this media tour. He was speaking with one person on Twitter for an hour, and then he had a Forbes interview. And he was painting this narrative of this sort of, ah, shucks, I'm doing my best. I just don't know what happened. I want to be helpful, but I just don't know where the money went. So I think people were really tired of this narrative. Tomorrow was going to be the first day that he would go under oath, potentially perjure himself. It's unclear what would have happened. But the reality is, like, all of these interviews, all of this testimony that he was doing, there's basically two possibilities. Either he's innocent and an idiot, in which case he is not going to enlighten us on anything, or he's a psychopath and a liar, and he's not going to tell us where the money went. In either case, it's not helpful. So 
what does this do to the crypto industry, Bitcoin and company? And what do you think this guy did? Well, the, the first question is, you know, I, I think crypto um, and, and the technologies, let's call them broadly, uh, Web3 and FinTech, are here to stay, right? I think they're going to revolutionize the way uh, we make payments. Uh, they're going to revolutionize uh, our experiential world. Uh, they're going to revolutionize things like smart contracts, uh, fractional ownership of debt and equity. I mean, those are all good use case applications. Um, what happened here, I think, is, you know, we, we, these exchanges, right, A, violated one of the central principles of crypto, which is decentralization, because they were central aggregators of of these uh, crypto assets, right? And I think the second part is it was a failure on the part of the federal government, right, to regulate them, right? They did not create a regulatory framework where a lot of these offshore companies could be American companies that are regulated uh, with custodial regulations, right? Uh, an exchange the size of FTX is a massive bank, okay? They're holding custodial assets like a bank holds your assets, right? And banks have very, very strict regulations on A, what they can invest on, and B, what their capital requirements are in the event that there's a run on the bank. And then, of course, you have the full faith and credit of the federal government. You have FDIC right. insurance. You have a variety of things that protect the consumer if there is a run, right? I think here in the case of FTX, number one, uh, none of those regulations were in play. So there was no, um, you know, they, they, they had no guidance and, and, and followed no rules with respect to what they did with the custodial assets of their customers. And it's going to be very hard to believe uh, that, uh, that Sam did not know uh, what those assets were being invested in, what kind of exposure there was to Alameda, and, uh, you wow. know, and also, uh, you know, the, this, these FTT coins that were created uh, and how they were used. Right. So that's all has to get flushed out. Um, and I'm sure that there'll be a paper trail on all that. You know, what's amazing is that you have people from Tom Brady to uh, from to Kevin O'Leary of, of Shark Tank all duped. I mean, they were representing him, cutting commercials, being time investors. So this guy had no quality control. He didn't have a risk management officer. How does some guy in a T-shirt sit there in the Bahamas and dupe so many important people and give zillions of dollars to so many, some Republicans, but mostly Democratic politicians? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, you know, I think, you know, Tom and Kevin are, are, are great people. Um, but, you know, they're, you know, they're not, they're not in the sense, you know, they're not massive hedge funds, right? You, you know, they were, they duped some of the biggest money managers I know. In, in the world, right? I mean, people that are, that are managing billions, if not trillions of dollars in assets um, were duped. So, you know, I think, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. you know, when you see all this sort of collapse, everyone's like, oh, how could you have said this? Or how could you do that? Or, like, for example, our county uh, accepted, not the city, which is what I run, but the county accepted uh, the naming rights for the arena, you know, and they say, oh, how could, well, you know, if, if, if some of the biggest money managers didn't know that there was uh, these practices going on, how is a Miami-Dade County, right, supposed to know? Uh, and frankly, what I tell people sort of jokingly a little bit is, at least in the case of the county, they made money. Uh, in the case of some of these investors, unfortunately, they lost tons of money. Uh, so you're on, saying on that some of these pension funds were invested in this too? Oh, there's there's money managers that are, you know, that, that, that manage billions, if not trillions. Of I mean, just look at their capital stock. I mean, it's all out there. Who is the one that invested? Yeah, I don't like calling out names because I don't want to put anybody out on Front Street, but it's all it's all available and open. Who wow. invested in, in FTX? And, and, and they're some of the biggest money managers in the world. Wow. 
So, uh, yeah. Mr. Mayor, what about uh, what about you? We only have a couple minutes left. When would you decide if you're going to run for higher office or even president? You know, I'm 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 like many. I think of you know you saw the, the former president jump in, and I think it was important for him uh, to make a decision because I think. Uh, uh, he was going to set the stage, and 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 it was also going to weed out people who were maybe talking about running, but but were not serious given given the former president's entrance. Uh, probably take the balance of the first quarter, or, or maybe even the second quarter of next year, to consider it based on who decides to get in, uh, assuming that people have already made that decision, and and continue to go through that process. Uh, and and obviously, it's a process where you pray and you you know talk it over with your family and friends right. and supporters and and make what you think is the best decision. There's a lot of due diligence that goes into it. Um, and, and at the end of the day, ultimately, sometimes it's a leap of faith that you have to take based on your belief that your message, your brand, your formula is one that the voters will, will gravitate towards. Understood. And lastly, what did you take away from these Twitter releases of all the internal dialogue and the, and the bias that was obviously there and the shadow betting that took place from great conservative minds like Charlie Kirk and Dan Bongino, as well as what we know about people that had a counter opinion to what Dr. Fauci and President Biden's administration was doing. What, these revelations mean what to you, Mayor Suarez? Well, I, I think it means that uh, you know, these companies have to provide transparency. I think it means that the ideology of the employees is shaping their policies without a doubt. And by the way, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, they're, they're talking about and, and just demonstrating clear evidence of yep. those practices of shadow man with reference to these major uh, conservative figures. But, you know, I sometimes ask myself, well, what about me? I'm a I'm a Republican mayor of a city, which is which is basically a unicorn. You know what I mean? Was I shadow banned? You know what I mean? Was was my the growth of my uh, Twitter uh, account sure. limited Why wouldn't in you any think way? That? You know what I mean? Why, why wouldn't right? Why wouldn't they? I mean, if it's as simple as clicking a button that says "slow down the growth" or "slow down their searches" or "slow down X or Y or Z," if I fit in the category, you know, why wouldn't that that happen to me? So I think it creates a lot of distrust uh, in in the platform, and I, I'm very happy that Elon is uncovering it all. You know that he is, uh, you know, sharing it all with the public. And frankly, I put out a tweet that went viral last week asking him to move uh, his headquarters to Miami because I think there isn't a city in America that better represents this new brand. You're always recruiting. Transparency. I'm always always recruiting, man. Right. And next thing you know, you'll have Messi with FC Milan, uh, FC Miami. Thanks so much uh, with uh, David Beckham. Uh, Mayor Suarez, thanks so much for having us in your city. Back in a moment. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. You know, I'm getting asked by all of these people right today, come on the show and how do you respond to Elon Musk? I don't respond to him. I don't pay any attention to him because that's merely a distraction. And if you get drawn into that, and I have to be honest, that cesspool of interaction, it, it, it's, there's no value added to that, David. It doesn't help anything. Uh, well, cesspool of interaction is called disagreement. That's Anthony Fauci not wanting to go anywhere with this disagreement, with this pushback, with this proof that what he says is not gold. And there was a I, I don't know who he was talking to over the weekend. Um, you know, we sat down with friendly networks, at which time he says one of my dreams was always seeing a 
pandemic coming and me being the only one to be able to fix it. And what is Anthony Fauci referring to? Musk versus Fauci. Here we go. Um, he would put out this on Twitter. My pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Uh, just one more lockdown, my king. He actually retweeted a meme. At which time, Scott Kelly, twin brother of Mark Kelly, says they're real people with real feelings. Furthermore, Dr. Fauci is a dedicated public servant whose sole motivation was saving lives, meaning the pronouns he thought was mocking them. And Musk replied was great. Forcing your pronouns upon others when they didn't ask and then implicitly ostracizing those who don't is neither good nor kind to anyone. As for Fauci, he lied to Congress, funded gain of furniture research that killed millions of people. Not awesome. IMO. What does IMO mean? In my opinion. I, I don't know anything. <laughs> All those abbreviations, just spell it out. But Musk always has the answer, doesn't he? Will Heard next. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Those 51 guys who signed that letter... Was Jim Baker talking to them? He had to know many of those guys when he served as chief counsel at the FBI. He had to work with those guys when they were spying on President Trump's campaign and when he was taking information from Hillary's lawyer, Mr. Zussman. Then when he goes to Twitter, is he working with those guys? Did he participate in helping them draft that letter or did he encourage them to draft that letter? Because you got you got Jim Baker who was involved in trying to stop Trump from winning in 2016. And there here he is at Twitter preventing President Trump from winning in 2020. Maybe maybe it was Jim Baker who was the actual insurance policy. And that is a little of Congressman Jordan on Sean Hannity last night talking about the 51 guys who signed off and said that Hunter Biden laptop had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation, none of which seemed to have made the effort to find out if it actually was like calling up Hunter and saying, was that your laptop? Or Devin Archer and saying, was that your email? or anybody else at CEFC. Uh, those 51 people that signed off on that letter, and two and a half years later, CBS, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, all said, yeah, it looks like that laptop is real. What about the 51 that should have known better? 40-plus which were CIA-affiliated, like Michael Hayden, like Mike Morrell, like John Brennan, and others. With us right now, a guy who's also CIA-affiliated, <laughs> but no relation to uh, th- those events. He also is Congressman from Texas, Will Hurd. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, th- thanks, Brian. It's always a pleasure to be on, my brother. So, um, yeah, it's always great to get your perspective because you- you're looking out for the country, not for your party, and we need more of that. Then uh, we'd be better off with you actually in government, but I don't blame you for not being in there. First off, on the revelations that have come out about all the authenticity and all the deception that was going on behind the scenes so far in the fifth tranche of Twitter reveals have taken place. What's your takeaway? Look, were conservative voices suppressed? Absolutely, right? Did, did some of the did, did, did senior Twitter officials probably lie to Congress? Likely. Um, are they going to be able to be prosecuted? Probably not. But as, as Jim Jordan was just talking about in that clip and he talked about last night, I think the broad question here, especially on the Hunter Biden laptop issue, is how is our national law enforcement services evaluating the materials that they have in, in their possession? And and I guarantee you, you know, some of those senior people that signed that letter that, that he was talking about assumed that all the right due diligence had been done, right? And 
and we and I, I'm not interested in relitigating everything of the the past, you know, six seven years. Um, but if you go back to the the 2016 issues are, are around um, around the uh, the Russian investigation and and Carter Page and and whether he was um, you know a a you know major Russian spy, like all those things were outlandish. And so what is happening? Um, how are we making sure? that um, our, our federal law enforcement organizations are doing the proper due diligence on the information they have. I think that's an appropriate and, and, and broader question. And, well, and, and, no and, the, and the laptop specifically, guess what? Jim Jordan's going to get into that next Congress. So, so, Will, in particular, you're a CIA guy who cherishes your reputation. Why would you sign off on anything that you personally haven't done the due diligence on? I mean, Leon Panetta, well, <laughs> sir, he started as a Republican, served in CIA and sure. everything else. Like, who would ever sign something that means so much and sign their and sign their credentials away? Because they are so. And again, I'm not, I'm not speaking for them or defending them, right? But I'm assuming they assumed that all the due diligence had been done. And if you notice, look, I get asked to sign a lot of stuff, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, what's the backstory on here? I need to talk to people, understand what this is, because, because you know, the, the information and the process on how it's collected and the due diligence matters. And look, my, my job when I was in the CIA, I was the guy overseas recruiting spies, stealing secrets, right? And And you always had to question the information that an asset was giving you in order to, to test for its its authenticity. And 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 I'm glad I had that experience because I continue to do that. I did that when I was in right. Congress. And unfortunately, sometimes in order to make news headlines or to get trending on Twitter, yeah. uh, people people cut some of those corners and, and don't do that due diligence and don't realize the political motivation of some of these um some of these actors Does that and mean, don't uncover that. Right. Because you know Mike Morrell, briefing President Bush sure, and President sure. Obama. You know, I've had him in studio before. but And then President Biden uses that on stage and said yep. 51 intelligence experts, 40-plus CIA members said that it's mm-hmm. not real. Meanwhile, he knew it was yep. real because it's his emails and his family. It's pretty astounding. So what they're looking at is the 51 people, what, what did they say? What did they sign? Who started this letter? Are they? Uh, that's what Kevin McCarthy said the other day. So David Price, uh, I'll just give Eric a second, was on sure. one of the 51. And he was on with Brett Baer about a month ago. And Brett Baer said, now that this came out, that New York Times, Washington Post, uh, CBS had a forensic expert bring through. They found out everything that Fox News knew right away in the New York Post obviously knew. So here's him defending himself. Listen to this. The purpose of the letter is to have an effect. And the nuance that you're talking about here never made it to candidate Biden because he said it plainly on a debate stage that obviously affected the dynamic. Yeah. Don't you think? I would absolutely love for all news media to show nuance on all these issues instead of racing to sound bites. And in this case, some news media race to sound bites. That's not helpful for the American people. And I you really think wish your that people. was helpful for the American people? Well, instead of quoting one sentence from it, people actually read maybe an entire paragraph. It shows in that we don't know if it's Russian. It affected anything? I don't know if it affected anything. But we don't analyze to. American political environments. So he's a CIA guy. He served at the CIA during the Clinton and Bush administration. And David Price, you know what he's going on? He said it has all the earmarks of Russian disinformation, but I didn't say it was Russian disinformation. Do you think that's disingenuous at best? Well, well, saying it now after you know that it's it is it is um, 
uh, that stuff has been debunked, right? And right. is it is disingenuous, right? And and yes, at the time, it sounds like something the Russians would do, but that's why you have to double check. That's why you re- reserve judgment. That's why you wait to gather all the facts before 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 rushing the judgment. And and I think and this is this is something you know I've seen with former government officials that when they were in government. You have huge teams, right, that are v- validating information, and then you get out and you don't have those huge teams. And sometimes, in, in an effort to stay relevant, you um, don't go through the process that probably most Americans think you're still going through, right? And recognizing that your former position um, still has some sway. And, and ultimately, these are the kinds of things that erode trust. Uh, between the the population and 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 the government. Now, I will, I will also say this: <clears throat> if anybody thought they were going to win a campaign based on the contents of that laptop, then you're doing something wrong as well, right? And and was this something that could have changed the 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 direction of of the last campaign? I don't think that is the case, but it's something. To, to be reviewed and the influence, mm-hmm. um, inf- potential influence peddling and things right. like that. Those are those are serious. Those are serious ac- accusations and, and things that should be explored. And I think that's something that um, Jim Jordan, as the chair, as the incoming chair of of the oversight committee, is I'm sure. I'm going to spend some time on. Right. Yeah, this thing is you don't want to live off the Hunter Biden laptop just like if you're a Democrat, you don't want to live off January 6th. They're important, sure. but you got to go do something more important. And I agree. I think that you agree with me. And by the way, Mark Thiessen agrees with you. It wouldn't have turned the election, even if they said Hunter Biden and President Biden or Vice President Biden at the time uh, was, uh, you know, former Vice President Biden at the time was involved in international business deals with Mexico, Kazakhstan, China, Ukraine. And was a major player, a beneficiary of it. I think that people might have affected how they vote more than likely. Mark Thiessen says not enough. Who knows? Uh, but we didn't get that information. And a little bit had to do with President Trump because he blew the debate. And he didn't. Uh, and Chris Wallace didn't help him. But uh, lastly, what's going on at the border on December 12th is something we haven't seen before. We're already seeing, mm-hmm. and you've seen some of the video on our channel, overhead. Yeah. There, were a thousand, there were a thousand people on Sunday alone. They went through the El Paso section. Uh, in Texas, I want you to hear Mary D'Agostino. Of, she's a deputy city manager in El Paso. Cut 24. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about Title 42 being lifted and what that would do here in the community. We have to be cognizant with the fact that it's, our, it's already here. Look at the vast numbers increased in the past couple of weeks, especially the last three, four days. Those numbers are unsustainable, and that is with Title 42 in place. And by the way, it's not Marie, it's Mario, sorry. Uh, but he was talking about what's already here. They expect over 18,000 illegals coming to our border illegally uh, every day. So what are we going to do? I mean, and why doesn't the administration see the urgency? Look, it is, it is unbelievable what's happening. It looks like, I want to say it was the 80s in San Diego, when back in the 80s in San Diego, you would have people coming from Tijuana into San Diego just hundreds of people running across the highway, right, and 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 coming into the to, to the country. This is this is you know there, there's some reminiscence of of that kind of experience. Here is the problem. Um, this is further being exacerbated by or, or an eroding a relationship with the Mexican government. The bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Mexico is probably um, pretty close to. I, I don't I don't want to uh, say it's on an all time low. But it's it's probably the worst that it's been 
in um, in in recent history. Um, that's contributing to this. I think the Lopez Obrador government in in Mexico, um, their inability to crack down on some of the criminal elements in their country is is also exacerbating this because many of those it's not easy to get to 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 Ciudad Juarez from other parts of Mexico and other parts of the world. And you have these criminal elements that are moving people, right? These are human, human um, uh, smugglers that are moving people to this. That's something that has to be countered and dismantled to, to prevent the throughput. Um, I hope that in this um, uh, the debates that are happening right now in Congress and funding the government, that Border Patrol and ICE and all these elements have the resources because they're under-resourced, right? and they're having to, to deal with a policy problem. And then we need the policymakers to change the policy, stop treating everybody as asylum seekers, uh, send more more people back to to their home country, uh, help address root causes in those places where this is being 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 brought. But we also need to be dismantling these these networks that are moving people um, inside of inside of Mexico. Right. And, that, and this is this is going to get worse, unfortunately, before it gets better. And this is the accumulation of mm-hmm. of two and a half years, I guess, two years, a little bit over two years of serious bad policy of not enforcing our laws on our border. So we got 14 suicides, uh, three last uh, three last month among Border Patrol. And I just, what worries me is it's not bad policy. I think they want this to happen. There has to be an element of this administration that wants this to happen. There's almost no other explanation. It's it's crazy. This notion about open borders is is just is is insane. And the fact that it's being 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 continued and and what frustrates me the most, with the exception of a handful of people like Henry Cuellar, Dems, that were super critical of policies of inhumane policies during the Trump administration, a lot of them have been silent. And it's like these policies are are, are more inhumane. And when you look at the communities that are dealing with the brunt of this, um, the 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 philanthropic communities that are trying to help you, they're being overrun. And and so the the ability in order to provide any kind of service to anybody is is being impacted. And and so so this becomes a a not only an issue about um, it's going to start getting colder. It's um, and you have people living on the streets in, in El Paso. So how is that humane to 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 do that? Because it's things are things are getting worse. And then when you're desperate and you're trying to, to feed yourself or your family, what do you do? Right. Like like all of these things are are, 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 are all these different kind of pins are going to fall. And and this lack of attention and, and focus on this. I, I don't know if the president or if Secretary Mayorkas have spoken about this um, anytime soon. I don't see any of the congressional delegations um, flying to El Paso Nobody. being like that are that are in power, right? Because again, like I used to represent this part of El Paso, and every, almost every day. There were folks, there were Democrats being like coming flying in town and being outraged and talking about how these need to change. Where are those voices now? Because something has to has to change, and the 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 pressure these cities and communities are under are are insane. 
So Border Patrol, according to Raul Ortiz, uh, Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz, 48 hours, 16,000 encounters, 97 million in narcotics was captured, four firearms, one stolen, three gang members, two sex offenders, two murderers, two yep. warrants, one injury to a child. Bill Malusian tweeted this out late last night. Uh, the chief says over 16,000 migrant encounters uh, at the border uh, over there. Eight thousand. That's an average of 8,000 per day. Former Obama DHS Secretary Jay Johnson once said a thousand in a day would be a crisis. We are at eight thousand now. I mean, what I'm trying to say, and what you get is this isn't every. This isn't oh, it's just a bad period. This no. isn't a. This isn't a pothole. This is unprecedentedly dangerous, and we left the Border Patrol out there to twist. And this administration is a federal government issue. Final thought, Will Hurd. If you are a governor, but, and, you're really powerless almost. You absolutely are. And, and ultimately, you, we need to listen to people like uh, Border Patrol Chief down there, Raul Ortiz, about what needs to be done. And, and, and these policies have to be, be changed immediately because this is, mm-hmm. this, this, the, the, the long tail of this problem is going to continue to get worse. And, right. and as a crisis, it, this, is, this is unprecedented in, in our history. Governor Will Hurd, uh, Governor, uh, Congressman Will Hurd, <laughs> maybe, maybe in the future. Will Hurd, thanks so much. Hey, and Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Back at you. And if you want a great bi- biography, you pick up Will Hurd's book. Meanwhile, special thanks to KSRO, 1350 AM in Santa Rosa, California. You're now part of the, of the Kil- Brian Kilmeade Show family. We appreciate it. You are Sonoma County's FM News Talk. Thanks for taking the show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, and special thanks to uh, Will Hurd for joining us. Also, don't forget to meet me in Point Pleasant, this great bookstore out there, BrianKilmead.com, right in New Jersey. You know how to get there. Dana Perino will be with me. And then we'll, Saturday will be in McCallum, Texas, uh, signing books there. And you see in our great affiliate, uh, Sergio, will be leading the charge. Alex, listen on WABC in Brooklyn. Hey, Alex. Hey, good morning, Brian. Thanks for taking the call. Your previous guest is right about the fact that if the public would have known about the Hunter Biden information um, that was covered by Twitter and the FBI colluding with them in this 2022 midterm election, it wouldn't have affected how the voters voted because it wasn't about Joe Biden. It was more about Trump and uh, versus the Democrats than it was Joe Biden versus the Republicans. But And it's not going to affect the 2024 election. So I don't think we, as important as it is to find out what happened with Hunter Biden, Joe Biden is not going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party in 2024. I think he is. So I think that, oh, you think he is? Yep. How does he do that? Who's going to vote for him? How do they no one's going to run against him. I think they're clearing Nobody, the decks. They're going to push everybody out of the race. Yeah. Um, then, but then he can't win the general, so I don't see why they would do that. But someone who they could put up who is cognitively struggling as Fetterman, and someone on the view said that they could put Fetterman up for um, 2024 to be the nominee, and then they can control him, and they could dispose of Joe Biden or disassociate him from the Joe Biden <laughs> disasters. Say, Two incapacitated people have Susan Rice and Barack Obama really be president? That's, that's, that would be insane. Uh, I mean, I couldn't see Fetterman running for president. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. one 866 In between great guests like Dr. Marty McCary, who's getting ready to go, and Vivek Ramaswamy, who's going to unwind what's going on at, uh, uh, with this whole Bitcoin scandal, uh, and so much more that's happening in social media, we'll be able to take some calls. Uh, so thanks so much for being here. And also, as I mentioned last hour, we're privileged to continue to expand the Brian Kilmeade Show family. KSRO, 1350 AM in Santa Rosa, California. Sonoma's County FM News Talk is now part of the team. We thoroughly appreciate it. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. A Christmas gift that's even more alluring than lingerie? Naturally nude pajamas by Pajamagram. Sensuous and soft, they look just as seductive as they feel. Get naturally nude pajamas today at Pajamagram.com. Number three. Well, it's amazing what $40 million to Democrats by Sam Bankman-Fried can buy. Why is the Biden Justice Department, why are they filing charges and seeking this extradition before he had the opportunity to testify tomorrow? Why wouldn't they want him to testify? And that's what people are saying. You inter- you actually arrested uh, Sam Bankman-Fried about time. He has lost a billion dollars from a, about a million different people. Uh, in the Bahamas, but he was about to testify under oath. He probably would have got himself in more trouble. We might have been able to get some answers. The timing is worth examining. Number two. You know, I'm getting asked by all of these people right today, come on the show and how do you respond to Elon Musk? I don't respond to him. I don't pay any attention to him because that's merely a distraction. <laughs> you pay attention to him. That's why you're so angry. Musk versus Fauci. Fauci better get used to the fact that he is no longer untouchable with the Republican House, a fact that has eluded him to this point, but not Elon Musk. Number one. This is a group of people at Twitter who may not have any concept of the idea of free speech and what it's about. This Twitter apparatchiks don't seem to trust anybody uh, outside their own hallways. Uh, That is true. Tweet drop number five, focusing on the banning of Trump. Turns out a lot of behind-the-scenes disagreements on the 45's lifetime ban. The pushback, his tweets did not violate their rules, it turns out, as their former legal exec chased him uh, from his home. By the way, as a former legal exec, got chased from his home for his Silicon safety. So there is some trouble amongst the former execs at Twitter. And I'll tell you what, they brought it on themselves. With me right now is uh, Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins School of Public Policy and author of The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. Dr. McCary, I did not see. Were you shadow banned? Were you ever silenced? (laughs) Well, I'll find out. Uh, Elon says there's going to be a way for people to go back and find out. I suspect I have been, maybe not as much as Jay Bhattacharya, but when I've posted some research studies we've done, people say that it's hard to share. We're doing two things. I'm talking about politics and we're talking about elections and obviously Trump being banned and Charlie Kirk being limited and Dan Bongino being frozen. Those are things. But then when you talk about health care, now the next tranche is going to be about COVID. You wrote a column today in the Wall Street Journal. You're contradicting what this administration's putting out, that the latest variant vaccine booster that is effective, that is that has empirical evidence that it works. And that's not the case. So in the old Twitter regime, if you write, you write that column and you tweet that column, you, you could be frozen or shadow banned because it contradicts the administration. Are you comfortable with that? 
<laughs> well, I think, look, if, if Twitter were active when, when Galileo was a scientist, he would have been, you know, banned. If, you would, if, if Einstein would have been on Twitter, Twitter would have taken him down. If, um, you know, he would have probably been have lost his license with the California Medical Board if he had a medical license. So you can't go with the group think. I mean, the group think has been wrong on so many things. There's been a lot of misinformation by the group think that has gone against data that has not been opinion. It's been in clear view or it's come out of Europe and it's just been ignored by U.S. public health officials. And long so, COVID is one of those things. So talk about long COVID and what, what people are saying. The numbers are so different. Three percent have long COVID in the U.K., but we have 20 percent. How could those numbers live together? Well, because the U.S. does very sloppy studies commissioned by the NIH or the CDC, and these very sloppy studies massively over-exaggerate long COVID, and they've created this image almost as if it's designed for scaring people, where one in five Americans will almost essentially be struck by lightning and become disabled by long COVID, and that's just not medically accurate. The studies from overseas found not only is it about 3%, but it goes away the vast majority of time. It improves over time. And people who had non-COVID infections like the flu and other common colds, if they got sick for a week, they had long-haul symptoms just like people who had COVID. So the new research, which I go through in the Wall Street Journal, clearly shows now that any infection, just being sick, can make you tired at four or five weeks. That's not long COVID. That's the medicalization of ordinary life. <laughs> so does it bother you? Did you realize that it was this situation, being that you live in this community and this is your career, did you realize these studies were based on, in many cases, flimsy facts? For example, this latest variant you write, we have uh, the, the, the administration coming out saying that the booster works. It turns out it was tested on eight mice. Yeah, so the booster was approved based on data from eight mice. Now, since then, we've got a little bit more data that suggests it might be helpful in some people, but we don't have good data on vaccine complications. The thing about long COVID is that Dr. Fauci and the NIH are obsessed with studying long COVID. They have spent $1.2 billion to try to understand this thing. And that's, by the way, generated nothing. Nothing has come out of that money. The return on investment has been zero for people who have long COVID, and it's been millions for the testing companies and MRI centers. So they're obsessed with studying long COVID, and yet they spend almost no money on vaccine complications, on COVID in children, on doing good quality mask studies by types of masks, on natural immunity, on Paxlovid and vaccinated Americans. All of these are open questions on the new bivalent booster. We don't have a single randomized controlled trial on that bivalent booster, and yet we're spending $1.2 billion on long COVID. Their priorities are almost weaponized in how they fund research priorities at the NIH. 
So how would you handle if you were running social media when you have something serious, whether it's the next pandemic, and we have so many questions and we have an evil regime like China who doesn't want to tell us what they did and what they infected us, in fact, give us misinformation, where they told it, it couldn't sp- they couldn't sp- spread human to human and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't aerosoled or whatever they were saying. They gave us misinformation. How do you handle if you're a social media outlet and you have people like uh, Dr. McCary who has a counter opinion to Dr. Fauci? Uh, the American people, the American people without medical backgrounds, look around and go, "Who do I believe?" How do you solve this issue? Well, look, I think arguments need to stand for themselves. Social media companies should just stay out of the business of accelerating certain people and decelerating others. They're not good at picking a horse. They have too many biases. And they have a horrible track record. So the idea that somehow they're going to figure out what you you should hear and what you shouldn't hear is actually hurting public health. And I'll tell you why. Because people now don't want to believe anything that comes out of public health because they perceive that it's just amplified by social media. So right now, for example, we've got a bad flu season. If you're coughing and you've got to go to the grocery store – You should probably wear a high-quality mask out of courtesy to other people. But nobody's going to follow that recommendation because all of the hype of the mask mandates and the CDC's distrust is going to mean that nothing we say is going to be well-received by a large segment of the population. For example, the flu shot uptake is down this year from previous years. But we got a bad flu season. Why is it down? Because we've lost credibility. The CDC has cried wolf too many times. And people don't trust them anymore. Here's what, uh, here's what Anthony Fauci said on another network, Cut 13. The unique nature of this is that it's three years of really essentially wearing down the country. This was a, hopefully in the beginning when it first came out. We thought we'd have a big blip of an outbreak and it would go away and we'd be done with it. And here we are going into the third year of it. And we are still mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic with the numbers that you just showed. That's completely unprecedented to have that amount of stress on the system and the durability and the duration of the stress is extraordinary. So he just says it's because it's three years and they thought it would be quick. You know why we thought it would be quick? Because first he told us the pandemic would not be a problem here. Then he told us masks would not be used here. Then he told us it was impossible to get a vaccine that quick. And when we got it, he took credit for it. I mean, I go over and over again. I think the main thing with him is he never miss, he never admits the missteps. It makes us go back on our video and find the video where he actually says it. And other networks just have no interest in, in making him accountable. If if you ever hear Dr. Fauci apologize for anything, please give me a call, Brian, because I've been following this guy trying to trying to want to believe that there's some really good work that he's trying to do. But it's hard. There's no humility. There's total arrogance. And he's made a lot of mistakes, obviously. But many people have. The difference with Dr. Fauci, in my opinion, is that His primary job is to fund research, and he did not fund the critical research at the critical times we needed it. That left many of these COVID topics as open controversies, and instead of doing those studies quickly, he lived in a TV studio and opined to the country as he shut down other opinions. And that's what we may be learning more about with with what Elon Musk is suggesting, that 
there may have been some direct contact between public health officials and Twitter on what to censor. We already know there was an internal communication between the NIH director and Dr. Fauci calling for a devastating takedown of Jay Bhattacharya and others who have fought for children and for schools to be open. So that's what we might be learning more about, and that's what we're sort of keen to find out in the next coming days with the Twitter files. You don't even want to bring up Dr. Atlas, who was in there, and he says it was like war inside the Trump administration, and I still think he has a little PTSD from it. (laughs) Here's a good doctor who tried his best to serve his country and advised the government, and he had been excoriated by the medical establishment for basically suggesting that young, healthy people are at a risk comparable to influenza, which ended up being 100% true. You know, there's a lot you don't hear about in the U.S. You know, in, the, in Europe, they, re, they um, do not, they recommend against masking children. In Europe, the schools were open, free and clear, with no difference in transmission rates. And in Europe, they banned the Moderna vaccine in people under age 30 in parts of Europe. So what may sound extreme here is actually par for the course with the European CDC or many countries overseas. Uh, yeah. Dr. McCary, I'm in Florida, which might as well be Europe, where they almost were never shut down. In fact, the governor regrets shutting down originally, which most people think was a good move. He even says, I shouldn't have done that from what we now know. I just want you to listen to this last soundbite. Here's Dr. Fauci on In Retrospect, Cut 14. If we knew in January and early February the things that we learned over months and a year about the virus, we certainly would have done things differently. And that's really one of the things you have to deal with. You have to deal with the information you have and make your best judgment at the time. If that information changes, which certainly it did with COVID because it's been so dynamic in our understanding about the virus, then you have to make changes in things like your understanding, your recommendations, and your guidelines. And that's the reason why you saw things evolve much, much over the first year. And even to today, understanding the different variants, how they've evolved over the years. And guess whose fault that is? China. Did he ever express the same outrage on China and frustration to China and used his contacts to China and the lab links to China? No, he'd rather go after political figures or sit out there and wing it on interviews or at the podium. Well, China is one of the topics he will never talk about unless he's directly asked. And the only time he's asked hard questions is in front of the Senate. Otherwise, you know, all these puff interviews he does and thousands of hours of television, um, he gets all easy questions. Never once in two and a half years did any one of these interviewers ever ask him, hey, have you been paid by Pfizer? Because the one time he got that question, two and a half years into it, he didn't give a straight answer. So it's, he really doesn't talk about China unless he's actually pressed on it. And I suspect the hearings will focus on some of that because look, people don't want revenge against Dr. Fauci. They want some closure. This is the biggest liability case in the history of the world. Millions of people died from this virus. And if it were manufactured in a laboratory and the NIH was funding it, people at minimum deserve an apology. And I think they should just come out once and for all, and Dr. Fauci should call for a universal end of all gain-of-function research, period, in perpetuity. 
that would, I think, be one small contribution in light of the giant mess that has been stirred up. Dr. Marty McCary, I think for sure uh, you've been fearless this entire way, but I'm pretty sure that things are going to uh, Twitter's going to have your name on it and we'll be talking about it. Dr. Marty McCary, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, listen, we come back your turn. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Then we go inside uh, the big arrest of that cr- uh, crypto creep arrested in the Bahamas. We'll give you the details. The Brian Kilmeade show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, it's amazing what $40 million to Democrats by Sam Bankman-Fried can buy because he didn't even have a subpoena to testify tomorrow, and he was going to be able to testify testify remotely from the Bahamas. I was the Senate staff leader for 30 hearings and 40 other Senate Judiciary Committee meetings, and I've never seen anything like this. And you have to question, why is the Biden Justice Department, why are they filing charges and seeking this extradition before he had the opportunity to testify tomorrow? Why wouldn't they want him to testify and hear more from directly from his mouth on his intent? And that was uh, Mike Davis, Article 3 Project President. And by the way, the FTX founder has been indicted now on eight criminal charges, including fraud and conspiracy. He's 30, as you know, uh, and he was officially arrested last night. So those charges range from wire fraud and conspiracy by misusing customer funds. Uh, the indictment also says he used different names to finance, to give more money to different clients. Uh, so in other words, you have certain caps on what you can give, not if you use somebody else's name. So there's micro charges here in my terms. So he is in a lot of trouble. Millions of people lost billions of dollars. So billions are missing. Nobody knows where there are. And people from small investors to big investors and the big names from Tom Brady to Shaquille O'Neal are hooked up with this, took money from this guy. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I hate to be an outlier, but but a group of Democrats showing preference for a Democrat and suppressing Republicans, it's just not breaking news to me. I mean, the New York Times and Political have been doing it for decades. So, I mean, shame on us for becoming so reliant on social media. If there is entanglement between government or law enforcement or intelligence community and Twitter, that's a different story. But, Brett, the New York Times has not endorsed a Republican since Dwight Eisenhower. I I mean, who is surprised that a group of Democrats is going to suppress positive stories about Republicans and amplify negative stories about Republicans? It's just not surprising to me. Well, it should be because it wasn't happening early on. The reason why we picked it up and Donald Trump Jr. was one of the first to say it is because it wasn't happening. Donald Trump was getting unbelievable momentum. He was the king of Twitter. He actually helped make Twitter the behemoth it is today, trying to recover some credibility along the way. Vivek Ramaswamy joins us now, Strive Asset Management founder and author of Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. So we're in our fifth trench. The next one's going to be more on the pandemic. What is your takeaway so far, Vivek? Well, I think there's a couple things, Brian. I think first is the constitutional question. Was the government working with private parties through the back door to get done 
what they could not get done through the front door under the Constitution? I think the clear answer to that is yes, especially in how Biden governed even afterwards. I mean, what you saw in the election lead up was just a preview of coming attractions and how they would target individual citizens like Alex Berenson by name in meetings with Twitter where they pressure them and threaten them to censor those voices. That's exactly the biggest problem here. But I think that in these dumps, a couple of other things have come out, Brian. One is a new legal theory that I hadn't thought of before, but which is obvious now in hiding in plain sight, which is consumer fraud. The definition of consumer fraud is telling consumers or users you're doing one thing yeah. when, in fact, you are doing another. That's the whole FTX problem. Well, guess what? It's a Twitter problem, too. And then I think there's the, the further layer, which is that even irrespective of the legalities of it, is this really the culture and society we want to live in? And what can we do to reform that corporate culture, which might be the most important question of all? Right. Uh, so the other thing is, uh, I found it a little bit in the exchange. So the FBI was meeting regularly with Twitter. And I imagine Facebook, if that was ever exposed, I'm sure it's everything on Twitter. I'm sure it wasn't just held to that. So they're meeting with them regularly. I was struck that the DNI director at the time, John Radcliffe, said that the DNI, the net, that, uh, that his people were meeting, he had no idea. And I'm just wondering how much Jack Dorsey knew. Is there a chance you have plausible deniability on Dorsey's part? I'll just wait for facts to come out on that, Brian. But I think the essence of the story really is that both in government and at Twitter, the managerial class ran the show. It is a deep state apparatus combined with a deep corporate apparatus. And, and we indulge this illusion that the people who we think hold the titles of the big companies that they're running are actually the people running those companies. They're not. I think that's clear with Jack Dorsey. Sometimes he might have been involved and had malice, but he wasn't really driving and running that company in a hands-on way. And I think the same is true, by the way, by the people who run the federal bureaucracies today. The people who we think we elect to run the government are not the ones actually running the government. And it is this horizontal managerial class between both the government bureaucracies and the private sector bureaucracies that today are coordinating to suppress the will of everyday citizens, while everyday citizens are blinded by the that we memorized back in 1980, saying that the free market can do no wrong without realizing that that free market does not exist in the face of this public-private managerial bureaucracy. Kind of interesting, too, uh, that you bring that up, because I can't tell you how many times when I go out and talk to people, they say, there's no way Joe Biden's doing this. Where is Susan Rice? Is Barack Obama running this from his house in Washington, D.C.? Because people just don't believe certain people are making these decisions uh, because they're they're unappointed, they they're not confirmed. They they get appointed by administrations, and they make the they make the trains run on time. So Brian, it's interesting. You know, my view on this is I don't even think it's any one person making the decision. The bureaucracy becomes its own living creature, right? It purposefully diffuses accountability. It's not just that the person who you elected to put in power didn't do what they were supposed to do or wasn't actually running the show. Even the individual who they appointed to run that entire arm of the federal bureaucracy wasn't really doing it either, and the bureaucracy itself becomes its own machine. That is exactly how freedom dies in this country, not with a bang where there's somebody who you can hold out as the individual party who was responsible, but with a whimper. And that's why I think that, you know, look, the next person who's in the White House needs to take really seriously the idea of saying that if you can't fire half the people in that federal bureaucracy, and there's all kinds of civil service protections and other that are constitutionally debatable in my opinion, but nonetheless that prevent you from doing it, the only way to do it is to shut it down and then build something new in its wake. And I love that that's what Elon, by the way, today it seems to be is doing, is shutting down that 
whatever, disinformation, trust, and safety board at Twitter. You can't reform that bureaucracy from within. you got to shut it down and create something new to fill the vacuum. And I think that's the way for going forward for both bureaucratic reform in the public sector and in the private sector. It's the same strategy. Just give people an idea of what today's, because a lot of people follow this close, like me and you do. Uh, but Barry Weiss had the tranche today, and she points out to one of the last tweets by former President Trump, 75,000 great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again will have a giant voice long in the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. That was the tweet, they say, that got him banned. And then it turns out a lot of people did not think he should be banned within Twitter. One employee says, because I'm uh, from China, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. I understand this, but I also think it's important to understand that censorship by the government is very different than censorship by the First Amendment. Another opinion, I respect that, but statistically, we impose far stricter rules on effectively everyone else on the platform. And what the president tweeted out was not offensive by any term. They go, well, 75 million patriots. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I think Bill Belichick would never get on Twitter again if he couldn't use the word patriots. So that's that's pretty much crazy. And then they just point out that other world leaders, horrible world leaders like the Grand Ayatollah and the thing about wiping Israel at the face of the earth, they bring up great quotes. He goes, why do we leave these guys on? So this is the internal dialogue that was taking place. The banning of the 45th president of the United States was an arbitrary slack conversation. You know, it's so interesting how, how much they're shooting from the hip and how different it was what they were telling the public they were actually doing. The parallels to government are striking. It's the new version of the 21st century of the government within the private sector. That's exactly what's doing its work. But the thing that's what's interesting to me was striking about that, Brian, I'm glad you mentioned it, was the use of the words American patriots was actually the code word that triggered Trump for exclusion from the platform all the way went up to went up to Vijay Agati, who was the general counsel and head of trust at the time. That's a problem. That's frightening to me. I mean, it is it is Orwellian fiction playing itself out in plain sight. Now, Brian, you know this from our conversations on TV on air. I usually like to just stick to the facts and yeah, not speculate a lot. But yeah. I'm going to I'm just going to offer one hypothesis here, which I don't usually do. But but here in light of that revelation. I, I have a hypothesis with some inclination and inkling of how these AI-based algorithms are trained to work. I would, I would be willing to bet that there's a good chance that even somebody putting the American flag on their profile, if American Patriots was going to be one of those code words, yeah. I want to see anyone who puts an American flag on their profile if that isn't a triggering function for these so-called AI algorithms that are trained by human beings as well. And, and that's a dystopian state of affairs, right? Somebody who would say American Patriots or, as I'm you know, hypothesizing here, put out – something with an American flag out there being triggered for government investigation. That is a, that is a problem. So a couple of things. Uh, so I'm talking about Vivek Ramaswamy and trying to make heads or tails over what's happening on Twitter, which has been let out, and how all the other media outlets are ignoring it. I am surprised by that, by the way. People are like, why are you ignoring it? And Trey Gowdy, why are you surprised by it? I'm, I'm surprised by both because I do think that if you could have – you report the story and then you just have some – Left-wing commentator tell everyone you don't need to. It's not important, but at least cover it in depth because this is significant. Now, Elon Musk took on Anthony Fauci. He wrote, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. And then coming back after him was Scott Kelly, a twin brother of Mark Kelly. He responded, uh, Elon, please don't mock and promote hate towards already marginalized and at-risk violence. They are real people with real feelings. Furthermore, Dr. Fauci is a dedicated public servant whose sole motivation is saving lives. Musk comes back again 
Forcing your pronoun upon others when they didn't ask and implicitly ostracize those who don't is neither good nor kind. As for Fauci, he lied to Congress and funded gain-of-function research. They killed millions. Not awesome, uh, in, in my opinion. IMO. What do you think about that exchange for the CEO? Look, I think it's good to reintroduce a culture of free exchange of ideas in this country. I think Elon should be clear, as I believe he was. The presumption is that he's speaking his voice as a citizen, which is different from his voice as a CEO of Tesla or of Twitter or of SpaceX. But he is a participant in the marketplace of ideas. And I think we live in this corporate culture, Brian, where people are so frightened to speak up that it has created this culture of fear in our country, fear of losing your job, fear of getting a bad grade in school, fear of becoming a pariah in your own community. What's the point of becoming a multi-billionaire if you can't actually do the most basic thing that a citizen ought to be able to do in our country, which is to speak your mind, to disagree in the open, and by the way, to give everyone else a chance to disagree with you in return. That is the American way. I mean, even for me, albeit at a somewhat smaller scale, I mean, I founded a multi-billion dollar biotech company, but I you know, also wanted to engage in the issues of our day. I thought, what's the point of making it in the system of American capitalism if you've got to be muzzled to be able to keep your thoughts to yourself? That's something that every citizen ought to, ought to benefit from. Now, unfortunately, that's easier said than done. For someone like Elon Musk, he doesn't have to worry about the consequences. A lot of everyday citizens in this country do have to worry about putting food on the dinner table if they speak their mind openly. And I think the only way we're going to fix that culture is if the leaders who are in a position where they don't have to worry about putting food on the dinner table are the ones who are brave enough to express themselves and be respectful enough to give somebody else a chance to air the opposing view in return. So I I have no problem with that. In fact, I'm glad to see him, and I hope other leaders, too, join a movement where we can engage in that kind of open dialogue without this culture of fear paralyzing us to silence. So here's the thing, and you guys are in that stratosphere of – of investing in high and high finance. But when Elon Musk looks at Tesla and sees they have a loss for the first time in six years, and some people say because people have given up to Tesla because he's coming down hard on liberals and seems to be more for conservatives, how do you feel if you're an investor in Tesla? It's a difficult question. You're, you're putting your finger on the right pulse, Brian. At the end of the day, it's a risk factor of investing in Tesla. Okay. If you're going to invest in Tesla, now now I'm going to draw a distinction here because I'm definitely against using the corporate apparatus to foist your political opinions on somebody else to say that, you know what, if you drive a Tesla, then it necessarily means that you have to abide by these political beliefs, that the board of Tesla isn't going to hire somebody in the executive ranks unless they're a certain skin color or unless they have certain viewpoints. That's the use of corporate power. But you've got to distinguish a citizen. And every one of us is a citizen, whether it's Elon Musk or myself or you or somebody who lives within a 50-mile radius of where I am in central Ohio today, whose voice ought to be weighted equally in a democratic body politic. And so I'm glad Elon Musk feels that way. Maybe somebody else feels a different way. I don't think that we should place more weight on his prosecute Fauci or his gender pronouns just because he is a multi-billionaire. In his capacity there, he's just speaking as a citizen. But so long as he's doing that as a citizen, that then just becomes a risk factor that somebody has to take into account to say that if you're investing in Tesla, turns out you're going to have a CEO who is going to express himself in his personal capacity, for which I have no criticism. But if he starts using Tesla as a vehicle to foist his views onto others, which, by the way, is what nearly every major American corporation has been doing for the last few years, from Coca-Cola 
to Disney, to Airbnb, to Apple, to, of course, BlackRock, the king of them all. That's where I have a problem. But if somebody's speaking in their individual capacity as a citizen, we ought not overweight their opinion just because they have it, because it's just like an opinion of any other citizen. But if that's a risk factor because somebody's a CEO and going to do that, that's just something that investors need to take into account in the judgments they make. Lastly, there was a big arrest. Uh, you know who got arrested, Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, eight separate counts. One seems bigger than the next. Billions are missing. Millions are hurt. Uh, did he destroy Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin still viable? The cryptocurrency world still viable? Or are we finding out there is no there there? Well, I think that uh, it would be if there is no there there, it's not because this happened, right? There, there might be other debates to be had about the future of crypto, but I don't think it's because a particular exchange fell. I've written about this in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, Brian. I think this gets pretty technical, but he was actually operating a centralized exchange. There are centralized exchanges that trade cryptocurrencies, like FTX. There are centralized exchanges that trade other things, other than cryptocurrencies. Take MF Global. That was a, a scandal about a decade ago, another exchange that ran into misappropriation of consumer funds. Because if it's centralized, that means another human being takes control of your funds. The future vision of many in the crypto world is actually to move to decentralized exchanges where no human being actually ever actually possesses physical control over somebody else's assets. That has its own problems. You have to trust algorithms instead of human beings, and those are vulnerable to breach. But I think these discussions get quite nuanced rather than knee-jerk reactions about what this means for the future of crypto. To the contrary, I think what's most interesting about this is what it teaches us about all of the financial frauds over the last decade and a half that had nothing to do with crypto, that actually were much more similar to what SBF executed here that we miss because of the veneer of cryptocurrencies. I mean, I brought up MF Global. That's John Corzine, an ex-Goldman executive who was a Democratic governor of New Jersey, who basically committed really similar types of transgressions allegedly at least, at MF Global of misappropriating customer funds and commingling them in a way that left customers holding the bag, he got out with a $5 million fine, which in his world is not a lot. You think a lot of the people on the back of the 2008 financial crisis, a lot of cardinal financial sins, no accountability on the back of it. And so I think one of the things that's interesting about this saga isn't what it teaches us about SBF or even crypto, but what it teaches us about the rest of the financial intelligentsia, especially the post-2008 financial intelligentsia and elites, who now are all too ready to distance themselves from SBF, when in fact a lot of those recipients or a lot of those folks that committed similar cardinal sins were instead the recipients of government bailouts at the time. I think that's the underexplored angle to the story, and I think the more interesting reflection rather than just you know beating the table on crypto or SBF. Understood. Man, I really I, – I should repay you double. Uh, I took you through the ringer, uh, Vivek Ramswamy, of all your uh, skill set. You probably still left some in the bank. Uh, thanks so much, Vivek. Appreciate that, man. Thank you. You got it. Hey, when we come back, I'll tell you exactly where I'm going to be Friday and Saturday to wrap up the tour of the president and freedom fighter Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and that battle to save America's soul. Don't move. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back. Got a couple of minutes here at the top of the hour. Thanks to everyone that made this all work. Allison, Eric, and Pete, uh, and the hotel, uh, which housed us. I got a really small hotel room, but I was able to make it work. <laughs> no, they, I shouldn't say it, should I? Okay. They gave me the presidential suite by mistake. It is four bedrooms, a living room, and a dining room, and two bathrooms. It's bigger than my house. 
and it's got its own elevator. I'm thinking of it. And by the way, it was not expensive, correct? I mean, it was not really. Uh, That's unbelievable because we were out here interviewing Jeb Bush, an interview you're going to see, an interview you're going to see on Saturday and here on on Brian Kilmeade Show. Sam, WABC. Hey, Sam. Good morning, Mr. Kilmeade. You have not mentioned today's World Cup match at two. could be Messi's last match internationally for the World Cup team anyway, and I just wondered what your thoughts were. I think he's going to win. Uh, I would watch in Argentina the way they bounced back the leadership he showed after the disastrous loss to Saudi Arabia. Unlike Cristiano Ronaldo, this guy's still playing great, and he's willing to give up the spotlight. I mean, this guy's an assist machine, too, and you can tell the way they love him. So he must be a great teammate. So I, I really want uh, Argentina to accelerate. Uh, I think that you got, you got four great stories. Morocco's an unbelievable story, but I think it ends today. Uh, thanks, Sam. And I think the tournament's been excellent. Uh, the two tragedies of two reporters dying is stunning. We'll get to the bottom of that. Brian Kilmeade, Joe. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.